done. Thank you, sir. Okay, Lee, what did I miss? Yes, it is. That's my attempt to demonstrate the sort of sandwich of faith. Um, the sandwich of faith. Yes. Um, his complaint. And my, my point being, he, he's, he's trusting God. Let me, let me start saying this. Trusting God does not mean we shy away from the hard questions. As if, like, you'll do this with some people. You want to be polite, so you don't ask them the really awkward but obvious question. God shows us in the Psalms and here that as long as you do it in the right way, we can ask our hard questions. But Habakkuk is not coming. The term C.S. Lewis used is putting God in the dock in, in British Parliament legal system. The defendant is put in the dock, and he has to account for himself. He has to answer the questions to defend himself. We must never ask God questions as though he is in the dock, as though he is the one on trial. He needs to explain himself to us. And the few times in scripture we see people coming at him like that, he does not give them the answers like he does Habakkuk, but rather you get Job's answer. Where were you? Who were you? Who do you think you are? And so Habakkuk is able to ask the full strength of his hard questions, but he does so in a context of faith. He's confident God's got a good answer. He's confident not only God's good answer is going to force him to have to answer again. I'm going to have to He's going to fix my wagon. I got to, there's something I'm doing wrong here. My mental math is off. And God's going to set me straight. And I'm going, to have, I'm going to have to answer to that. So if you can come at the Lord like that, go for it, by all means. Um, and, and don't feel the need to, to dodge or weaken the hard questions. But this, this whole complaint begins and ends with faith. You are my holy one. You are my rock. You, you, we are not going to die. And you're going to have an answer. And when you have an answer, it's going to set me straight. I'm sure I'm off. And I'm going to have to answer to you for the answer you give. But then in that context, go ask away. Um, okay. That's Lee. The microphone. It is so strange to think that this book, whenever it was written thousands of years ago, is so current for today and the painful things that are constantly, we're constantly being thrown at us, that it right. reminds us that God is in control. He has his ways, but boy, it is a hard, um, hard pill to swallow, yeah. except for having confidence in who God is. Right. Yeah, no, no. And like I, I said, there are some unanswered God questions. Has, the, the, big, the big unanswered question that Habakkuk doesn't specifically ask, but I think insinuated with the entire problem of evil is how can God make use of evil and not be stained by it? How does he ordain things and not share in them? And the, I'm not aware of much in the Bible that says the how, rather that, that that is the case and no, absolutely he does not get stained by them. And I'll, I'll point back to the crucifixion. God ordained the crucifixion for good reasons the men who did the crucifixion did them for wicked reasons. God is to be praised for the crucifixion of his son, and Pilate and those other men are to be condemned. And so at the very heart of the gospel message is God's use and control over evil. So if I can praise God that he brought it to pass that his son was crucified for me, then when God says, can you, can you trust me that I know what I'm doing over here? 
Can you trust me that I've got good purposes over here? How can I receive the one and not? And, but I also was really encouraged this week that the original citation of the just to live by faith is in the face of that problem. I mean, what's it mean to live by faith? It means to trust God when you don't understand what's going on because the world looks horrific. And God says his comforting word, my, my righteous ones, trust me, my righteous ones will live, and I give them life. My righteous ones live by faith, and I give them life. And so he gives somewhat of an answer. No, it's not forever. Judgment's coming, and I'm going to deal with them. But I'm sure Habakkuk has unanswered questions still, and he's got to trust him. And that's, that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. No, absolutely. No, as, partly as I was going through this, I'm like, man, this, this, I think this stuff's good for all ages, but in particular with everything going on in the world, with these mass shootings, with the invasion of the Ukraine, with everything, it's like, what are you doing in the world, God? Well, he's, he's accomplishing his purposes. You want to speak? Go, go. Uh, I think uh, um, a corollary uh, issue or problem, question, whatever, is with God's eternality, um, a matter of timing. Yeah. Um, God is eternal. We're just immortal. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, because because we um, uh, we have a creation date. We never have a right. cease being date. Right. Yeah. Um, I've heard heard it said often that God's timing is is seldom early, but it's never late. Uh, <laughs> um, like something out of Lord of the Rings. Yes, yes. Um, Gandalf says a wizard is never early. He always arrives exactly when he means to. But no, no, the Bible is filled again and again with God showing at just the right moment. Uh-huh. It looks like hope is lost. And no, yes, frequently, uh, frequently he does exactly that. Yeah, uh, we're, as James says, a, a vapor. God is, is uh, yeah. eternal. Well, in the New Testament corollary to that would be in Second uh, Peter. Do not count the Lord's... Go to Second Peter. There's mm-hmm. similar the issue of timing, and again God saying, "Look, it may the whole issue of it won't delay. Be patient, wait for it." Does certainly imply you might be tempted to think it's taking a long time. That's not what's happening. God's not saying I'm going to hit the snooze bar, and when I get up in half an hour, then I'll go deal with it. He's got a plan. Trust me, wait for it. It's coming. But by clear implication, His timing and His plan might, to me, seem like He's dragging His feet. So uh, 2 Peter um, 3, um, starting in verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So the, the charge from the scoffers will be, Jesus is coming back, huh? <laughs> Doesn't look like it. It's been a long time now. I take comfort in the fact that Peter predicts that will be the charge. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter predicts they're going to deny the flood. And by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. God's timetable is not your timetable. 
Um, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up. See, global warming is going to happen really suddenly at the end there. There's a global warming. Okay. It's, it's going to be fast. Yeah, okay. Anyway, but no, that, that's so the same, the same struggle. Lord, it looks like Caesar's triumphing, and he's killing the Christians, and it's coming. It seems like it's taking a long time. Be patient. God's timetable is not your timetable. He's not, he's not asleep at the wheel, right? So the, the just shall live by faith. It seems that like the faith God's calling us to trust in him and almost always has that notion of, yeah, but this is what, I mean, even, starting with Abraham. Who's the man of faith? Abraham. And God says, I'm going to give you a kid. How long does Abraham wait before he has a kid? At least 20. I got to check it out. At least 20. So, and that's the man of faith. He, Paul says in Romans 4, he believed, he hoped against hope. So if Abraham's the man of faith, and if you have faith, you're children of Abraham. Again, this context of faith primarily existing in the absence of an immediate fulfillment of promises um, seems to be a hallmark element of the faith that God wants to put on displays. That's the faith that pleases me. Abraham exercises it. Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is the wicked swallowing up the man more righteous than himself? And yet trusting the Father, my, your will be done, not mine, seems to, to be consistently a hallmark of faith. Not faith against any evidence, but just faith when we want something else to happen now. You know, and, and God saying, wait, in my time, in my time. Um, God's patience, uh, if it weren't for God's patience, world history would have ended in Eden. Um, right. Uh, but God mercifully put an angel there to keep uh, Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of life. Right, right. Well, it's, it's God's patience that, that allow, I mean, here... Um, God's patience is allowing more to come to salvation. Um, so if, if, if the Lord had come back when Peter wanted them to, I wouldn't exist. <laughs> Neither would you, right? And if the Lord had come back three years ago, my twins wouldn't exist. So even there we can see some of the fruit of the goodness of God in delay, um, that there are people who are going to come to know the Lord, that only have come to know the Lord because he's been patient. Good grief, he was patient with us. And so again, there is reasonable warrant to trust him, but no doubt that the challenge is, but, but I'd like to see it happen now. You know, which is, turn to First uh, Peter. This is the exact, again, getting back to Jesus and his faithfulness. This is exactly what Jesus had to trust the Father with. First Peter 2, this is, all about suffering unjustly, um, suffering for doing good, and uh, let me let me go back to uh, twenty. For what First Peter two twenty. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. 
he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now, this is Jewish line of reasonings from the greater to the lesser. Jesus' example is greater. In other words, we're called to imitate him. We're called to not curse people who curse us. We're called not to, to respond and, and, and retaliate to people who attack us. Jesus, the, the contrast with Jesus is greater than the contrast with us because we can't say we have no deceit in our mouth. We can't say we never do anything wrong. So if the sinless son of God, if anyone would be righteous in cursing in response, it's Jesus and he didn't. By implication, therefore, how much more ought we be able to follow in his steps? So that's, that's the logic here. Um, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. My father will deal with this. My father will settle the scores. My father, in his time, will judge this. Jesus did not deal with the shame of the cross by saying, it's worth it. It's okay. It's not that big of a deal. He tells us in other places in the Gospels, for judgment I came and would that it were now. But he's trusting his father's timetable for justice. And then he calls on us to do the same thing. That's again, gets back to what it means to have faith and what it means to trust God. Um, so what's going on in Habakkuk is what's going on in First Peter. It's what's going on on the cross with Jesus crying out. It's, it's what's going on with Abraham saying, you said I was going to have kids, where are they? Trust me. Trust me. And again and again and again, we see God's faithfulness. And so those tales and reports of God's faithfulness should hopefully help us strengthen ourselves to trust him today. Like, oh, I see the end of the outcome of Abraham. It was good. I see the outcome of the end of Joseph. It was good. I see the outcome of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It was good. Okay. I'm confident God's doing something good. I have no idea what he's doing, but I'm confident he's doing something good. All yeah, the time. All the time. All the time. Yeah. Okay. Other questions, thoughts on any of this stuff? Timothy. Needs a microphone. Um, I just am curious, is there like a guideline that there are times when God uses human uh, you know, cooperation or whatever, he raises up the Chaldeans or whatever. And then there are times where God just does things unilaterally. He divided the Red Sea. He didn't like yeah. call up a nation of nautical boat yeah. makers to be docked yeah. at the, you know, you're or describe, what you're describing that the, the, the technical talk would be immediate versus immediate mediated God working through third parties mm -hmm. and God working immediately with no intervening agent. So the parting of the Red Sea would appear to be an immediate act of God, no mediation. He didn't do it through Moses. Moses lifts his arm up and raises his staff. But, you know, in other places, the Chaldeans are God's instrument of judgment. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's mediated action. It's going through a third party. Yes, God does both, immediate and um, mediated activity. What's interesting, you, you point that out, go, go to Habakkuk 3. I was struggling with what to do with Habakkuk 3, the first half. The, the ending's fantastic. Because what you get is um, the description of uh, God himself showing up immediately. Which is not what happens when Babylon's destroyed. God uses, we read in Daniel, he uses 
Darius. He uses the Chalde he uses the Persian, Medo-Persians. But what's described here is sometimes called a theophany. It's, it, it's usually only in poetic language. It's in Psalm 16, I believe, the end of 2 Samuel. David describes his deliverance. And the, the poetic author is describing picturesquely as though God the Father himself were to show up on earth. Um, and I was like, what do I make of this? So look, um, we'll just read it. Habakkuk 3. O Lord, I've heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand. And there he reveled his, revealed, veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging rivers swept on the... This is a picture of God the Father showing up on earth. And what's he doing? He's judging the nations. Keep reading. The mountains saw you and writhed, verse 10. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. The flash of the glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations. This is not just about Babylon. In anger, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses and the surging of mighty waters. What's he doing? I think he's describing the return of Jesus. Or what the Old Testament, God coming to judge the nations. Because what's the answer to his first problem? Lord, Israel is really wicked. What are you going to do? I'm going to judge them. But Babylon's really wicked. What are you going to do? I'm going to judge them too. And so he's, he's using the picture. He's finding hope ultimately in God's final judging of the nations. God's final balancing of all scales, setting all things right, righting all wrongs, of which... The judgment of Babylon is a part, and of which the judgment of Israel is a part. But I think he's looking, ultimately, there's going to come a day where God is going to settle everyone's score and set everyone right, and that's what I'm looking to and waiting for, and that is what will ultimately satisfy my anguish at the current injustice. You know, and, and when that happens, there's no mediation. He just shows up. There's a couple of Psalms that speak this way. I think it's 16 or 18. Let me check. Um, very similar language. The, uh, the hymn we sing, O Worship the King, most of its imagery is taken from, I want to say, it's either 16 or 18. Hold on, I'll tell you. Um, it's uh, not 16. Yes, 18. Oh, man, 18, man. And that's... 18 is an adaptation of David's psalm in 2 Samuel 22. They're almost word for word. David adapted a version of his psalm for the corporate worship. And I love verse 9. You bowed the heavens and came down. It's like God's putting his hand on the heavens and they creak and go, and he comes down. And it's a picture of God showing up in judgment. 
So there's, there's antecedent pictures of this type of thing happening, the great and terrible day of the Lord, when God comes to judge the nations in his wrath and to protect his people. The return of the Lord will be two things. It'll be, it'll be the judgment upon the wicked nations, and it'll be God coming to defend his peoples, which is exactly what Habakkuk is envisioning and finding hope and comfort in. So um, the struggle remains the same, and in many respects, what we're hoping and trusting in remains the same. Yeah. Okay. Bennett. When you were talking about um, when Jesus was returning, it kind of reminded me of Revelation nineteen, thirteen. Yeah, let's let's go there and read that. Absolutely, um, I think the the clearest fulfillment we see of this is in Revelation nineteen. Let's go take a look at this. Um. Do you want me to read it? No, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. I'll read it. But no, you're spot on. Spot on, Bennett. Um, it sounded like uh, Habakkuk was kind of like telling the future. Well, I, I think there's, if you think of, uh, hmm, how to give an analogy. Think of a picture that comes more and more into focus. You, gotta, you remember those old cameras with lenses? You had to like, turn them and things are, you ever see something come into focus kind of yeah so the old testament gives information on this coming day of the lord this coming day of the judgment of the nations and more and more and more and more information comes in and revelation gives us the clearest picture so habakkuk on the one hand isn't the first person to mention this his description of it adds further information but there's people before him that spoke of that um, and then the clearest picture I think we get is Revelation 19. Um, I'm, I'll start in 11, but yeah, it centers on in 13, 14, 15. Then I saw the heavens opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. <coughs> From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. You've, you've heard me say before, God's weapon of choice is language, is words. Again, here we go. What tool, what sword does the Lord fight with against the nations? It's, he speaks. This is why Martin Luther in A Mighty Fortress is Our God says, One little word shall fell him. It's, it's going to be an anticlimactic battle. If this were a Michael Bay movie, people would be disappointed because there's no big bangs and explosions. The armies line up, and the King of Kings opens his mouth and speaks, and it's over. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, called out to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God. The battle's done. If you're waiting for a big battle, it's done. Now we're calling on birds to eat the dead bodies. That, that's how insignificant all the arrayed nations of the world are against the Son of God returning in glory. So, so yes, very good, Bennett. Absolutely. What, what Habakkuk's talking about is fully in line with this. Did I hit it spot on? You hit it spot on. Out of the park. It's a sports thing, right? Yes. 
Golf? <laughs> All right. Bogey. Okay. Um, any other? Yeah, Don, go. Um, just a, a flip side of the other, you know, uh, in Habakkuk, God's saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, the flip side of that is uh, Isaiah 64 or First Corinthians uh, 1, 9. Where it says, eyes is not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them that love him. So however you think bad you think it is, or however good you think it is. Yeah. You, the, the judgment and the wrath will be greater than you can imagine, and the consolation and reward and glory is greater than you can imagine. Uh-huh. It's all going to be greater than yeah. you can imagine. You know, you, this, this is my simple version. We will see and be satisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, when we see what the oh, Lord has we'll be done, overjoyed. we will, yes. <laughs> More but than we, satisfied. What I mean by satisfied, there will be no remnant of but why, or wouldn't this have been better, or, well, I guess I see it. You'll be, y- y- the explanation of what God does, it'll do far more than satisfy, but you will be mm-hmm. satisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'll, I'll promise that to people, you know, when the miscarriage happens, why did this happen? I don't know. When you see what God is, has been doing and is up to, you, you will be satisfied. You will have no leftover qualms, no leftover questions. You will be satisfied. Or another way I've heard this said, God will do right and will be seen to do right. By which I mean the whole point of this judgment at the end of time with all the world assembled is that we no longer have to take God's word for it. God's assembling an audience because he wants to be seen to do right. Not just to do right but to be known and seen so that the universe will praise him for his judgments, praise him for both his, his, his wrath and his condemnation and praise him for his mercy, right? Um, so, so God intends to be seen to do right, even as he tells us, trust me, I'm doing right. He, 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 he will make it clear. He will make it known. Um, and so that's what I trust in when I wonder why some terrible things that I've seen happen have happened is God will have an explanation that will satisfy me and will set me straight, just like a backup intends to be set straight. It's not the case that I got a really good point and God's going, well, yeah, Jeremy, I hadn't thought of that one. It was good. Rather, I know he's got a good reason. I don't know what it is. And I'm sure he'll set me straight and I'm doing some of this wrong. But from that attitude, bring your confusion and your vexation to the Lord and don't feel bad about it, you know? Sorry, did I? No. Okay, okay. We, we have far too little respect for our own ignorance and stupidity. There, there is a diff, there's a great difference, actually, between the two, but... Right. <laughs> no, and from humility, ask your tough questions. From humility, Lord, I don't understand. Why, why didn't you stop that school shooting? Lord, why didn't you overturn Roe versus Wade decades ago? Lord, why, why didn't you? Whatever, by all means. If, if you're coming from the, I, if you can also say, Lord, I'm sure you have good reasons. I'm sure you know what you're doing, but I would awfully be helped if you could help me understand why. Now, there's no promise for us. You're not necessarily a prophet like Habakkuk. God's going to answer you. I'm not promising you you'll get an answer here and now. At times he does. And and in my own life, I've got to see little snippets. I've got to see him behind the curtain have been helpful. This is one of the reasons why I think reading Christian biographies can be helpful and is, I think, biblical. In Hebrews 13, we're to consider the the outcome of the faith of those who taught us the word of God. We're to look at their lives, which I think is a warrant in some respect for Christian biographies. 
Look at the outcome of the faith of Taylor Hudson. Hebrews 11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at the outcome of the faith of Hudson Taylor, of Wycliffe, right? Look, look at how, and again, you'll see God is faithful to sustain these people. You're reminded of, and in many cases, like, look at how he did through the faithfulness of Martin Luther and of others. Good grief, you know? And he was, he had to hide out in a castle because they were trying to put him to death. And I'm sure he could be like, Lord, what's going on? He doesn't know he started the Reformation, you know, at least not initially. He created the German did, language. Did, yeah, didn't he translate most of the Bible it. into German while yeah. he was stuck there because he had nothing yeah, else to yeah, do? Yeah, the, the three years that Luther was basically locked in a tower because they were trying to, after the Diet of Worms, where he stands up for the Pope, he makes that famous, you know, unless I'm shown by Scripture and clear reason, I, I, I cannot recant, do other, to go against conscience is not safe. I, here I stand, I cannot, that, that's famous, here I stand. They're like, okay, they're going to kill him. So he gets kidnapped by friends. <laughs> on his way back because the Pope had promised him safe conduct and they didn't trust the Pope to give him safe conduct. So he gets kidnapped by a bunch of knights and taken into a castle where he's hidden out for three years, in which time he translates the Bible into German, unifying the dial, unifying, birthing the German, he didn't create the German language, he birthed it because now all the German Protestants have a single Bible, it unifies their language. All the different regional dialects have a touchstone point. And so really the German language is birthed by Luther's translation of the Bible. Um, so, hey, that was one of the things God was doing and having him locked up in a tower for three years. But I'm sure there were eight billion other things too. But there's one of the good things. Like, oh, okay. Um, well, it's like you read the story of Joseph. I mean, think of Joseph's descent. He's up here. And God, what's God's promise to him? Your brother's going to honor you. You're going to bow down to you. You're going you're to be great. Yes, but so, but so what God initially says to Joseph is ex- exaltation. What's the next step for Joseph? Descent. You get thrown in the well. Then you get sold into slavery. Then you get falsely accused of rape. I mean, it's just down, down, like you think it couldn't get any worse. And then God exalts him. But think of the years of that descent what was the promise God gave you? What was his word? You're going to be honored and exalted. What's the next step in that program? Sold into slavery. Next step, falsely, ac- falsely accused as a slave of trying to rape your master's wife. I'm sure that took some faith to believe what God had said. Just like Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Am I going to have any kids? Not for the next decade or so. Right? I mean... And you can just gloss over that, and you're like, no, that's, that's what makes Abraham the father of faith. Um, yeah. Okay. Oh. Oh. I've been raising you my head. Oh, okay. Okay. Any other, uh, I got some avenues we can go down if you want, but any other questions on this or any other, uh, any other thoughts with this? I'll make, I'll make one that I want to make. I think, I think when we're wrestling with evil and when we're wrestling with making sense of how much evil there is, because th- this is the classic argument now against God and Christianity, and I think this can be one of the greatest struggles of faith for his children, is the temptation. I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing new under the sun. It goes back to Genesis 3, right? The serpent comes up, 
and says, you can't trust God. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He's trying to keep something from you. I mean, the serpent's challenge, God knows you'll be like him, and he doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to keep you under his thumb. Is to trust the goodness and character of God. And when life explodes and you're in the whirlwind, um, now, Habakkuk doesn't stumble over this. He starts with, you're my holy one, you're eternal, we shall not die. Like he starts, the, the temptation and the real challenge is when our wrestling with evil, when we begin to question, may, maybe I can't trust God's got my best interests. Maybe he's not always good. Maybe some days he's a jerk. Maybe he's like, what does Jesus say? Maybe he's a harsh man who reaps where he doesn't sow. And I, I know people wrestling through that. And I would just say this. Don't underestimate the significance of that battle. That is the battle of Genesis 3. right? I mean, that is, that is the battle of do I have faith. And I'm trying to highlight the repeated instances where that is exactly the battle. Joseph, I'm going to bless you and exalt you. Is Joseph going to trust God even in the face of all contrary evidence? Is Eve going to trust God? Or, because really that's, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have to take God's word for what's good, what's bad, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And the whole temptation is, wouldn't you rather not have to take his word for it? Wouldn't you rather know for yourself? Wouldn't you rather just know good and evil, not have to have God tell you what's good and evil? And that's the temptation of not trusting somebody. You know? It's just simple, you know what this is like. Someone's like, hey, can I go left or right? And do I trust them or do I want to look right to make sure I'm clear anyway? <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's a simple example of me not trusting someone. They tell me, no, you're clear. I want to see it for myself, actually. And that can be a fine thing to do when driving, but when the living God tells you something and you're like, well, could I, could I, could I see for myself, please? Could I, uh, could I know my own? Um, we're, we're trusting his character. And so it's a real struggle, but it's a really serious struggle. And we got somebody, thank you, my mom's snapping her fingers. She's <laughs> doing a salsa back there. Um, rowdy, everyone, Rowdy Bollinger, that's his name. Did you, I got, my wife wants to know, were you, like your parents named you Rowdy. Right. After That's your full name. Like Rowdy your Michael Bollinger. After Rowdy Yates on Rawhide. The, okay. The, the, okay. Cool. The cowboy television show. Okay. Clint okay. Eastwood. No, Jeff, yeah. she's like, that can't be his name. I'm like, no, that's his name. She's like, no. No, it's on my license. It's I, on your license. <laughs> believe it. Okay. Yes, sir. No. Uh, R.C. Sprawl addressed this question at a conference one time, and... Uh, he said that people were asking the wrong question and that he said it's not that there's so much bad and evil in the world but that there's not more mm. and he traced it back to adam and eve uh, the soul that sins shall surely die uh, god if he would have been absolutely just would have just wiped them out and that, that would have been the end of it yeah. and uh so he went on and a, and, a, and a few others had went on and, and they had talked about you have to have a high view of God 
and you have to have a high view of Scripture. If you don't have a high enough view of God and a high enough view of Scripture, then these problems will come up. And, I mean, that, it's a hard pill to swallow, but it's fact. Yeah, he, uh, I remember seeing one where he's being interviewed. Towards the end of R.C.'s life, he stopped, I won't say he stopped caring, but he, he, stopped, he stopped reining it in. He, he, and he's at one conference and some guy stands up and he's asked, he's asked the question, why was the punishment so severe for Adam and Eve eating the fruit? And one guy takes a swing, and then R.C.'s like just taking the mic. He's like, wait, what? Punishment so severe. What's wrong with you people? And, and he follows up with, you don't know who God is. Um, and there is something to that. I mean, the, the em- well, not something, there's a lot to that. The, the emphasis on the greatness of the judgment, the greatness of the glory, we're, we don't know who we're dealing with, really. I mean, and every time people draw near to God, they're undone. You remember Israel drawing near the mountain, and it's shaking, and it's quaking, and Moses' face is glowing, and the Israelites are saying, we don't want to go anywhere near that, or we're going to die. Okay, angels show up and people start worshiping them. I mean, the greatness of God, even the language in Habakkuk of the mountains trembling and falling. Like, again, p- getting part of this in context, the, the story of the universe is not the story of the really nice people. It's the story of the great, great God and his rebellious creation. And so if you reframe it, there's the great, great God and he gives good gifts and he pours out grace and he makes man from the dust and the man looks at him and says, no. And the great, great God kills animals and makes skins for them. And the great, great God makes promises to them and perseveres in patience waiting for him. And then he and his descendants, you get to know, and they do nothing but evil. The inclination of the thoughts of the hearts of men are nothing but evil continually. And the great, great God chooses Noah. And he says, I'm going to make some promises to you. Even in his judgment, there's mercy. And you tell that story. That's the story of the Bible. But if you start with the story of the really nice people, you're, no, I mean, I don't say that flippantly, right? Because we all think we're nice people, and we certainly think like plenty of people we know are nice. Okay. Every person who takes the biggest cookie and the biggest slice of pie. Or the, or the best parking space. I've never thought, there's surely someone more important than me. I'm going to leave that space for them. <laughs> right? Never thought that one. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's 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 significant. I, but for people wrestling with this, and like I said, I talk to people. This is not this is this is common because it's one thing for tragedies to happen over there. Like I'll give you an example. People, I don't want to minimize in any way the recent shooting sprees, the recent uh, murders, right? And people are really troubled with that. God flooded the entire world. Pause and envision that. Not, not to try to make light at all of what's happened, but like the God of the Bible, by the ninth chapter of the book he wrote, says, I killed everyone on planet Earth but a couple and their three sons and wives. That you got to start framing things in context, you know, and, and saying, okay, we live in a world where it was righteous of God, and he did kill everyone but seven people. Seven people? Eight. 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 There it is. Thank you. Eight people. 
Oh, that's right. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Um, so, so that's 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 part of the uh, that's part of the framework. It, it, we read over those things, and it doesn't shake us up until it happens close to home. So you can read about you know. It, I, I'll tell you this: Who here read about Babylon capturing Israel, but was way more shaken up by 9/11? Because it's close to home. It's us. You read about Babylon capturing Israel, and it's them over there. And then it happens to us here. And it's not that when it happens to us here, you shouldn't be shaken up. It's to say, don't let the familiarity and the distance of the text take you away from the visceral awfulness of some of the things going on. It's not to say, think less than 9-11, but think more of this judgment that, that Habakkuk's clearly wrestling with and have clearly struggling with. Um, God's promising him 100 9-11s and worse. Um, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is a nasty dude. But when Nebuchadnezzar finally comes in, he sets up a propped king. He's in a bunch of places. When Nebuchadnezzar sets up his prop king and the prop king turns to Egypt looking for help, Nebuchadnezzar shows up, and here's what he does, because he's a nice guy. He takes his sons in front of him and in front of the king slits their throats and kills them and then takes his own hands and gouges the king's eyes out so the last thing he ever sees before he goes blind is the death of his sons and his line. That's the type of guy Nebuchadnezzar was. That's, that's how he proved his dominance over those he conquered. These are rough, nasty people. And when you read about it, you're like, oh, okay. No, this is awful. There's a whole books of the Bible written how awful the coming conquest is going to be. Lamentations exist because it's awful. Lee. I know this is such a stupid question, but when you think that Adam and Eve <laughs> were like talking to God, how, why were they so stupid? Why, why did they do that? Because didn't they know God's, I did, don't get it. I, no, no, I, I think, I think, um, okay. no, no, simple question. Two, two things I'd say, two things I'd say is this. Our own ignorance and stupidity. According to 1 Corinthians 10, these things are written for our instruction. No sin's overtaken you, but it's common to man. Therefore, if anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. We're not to read the Bible and think, I wouldn't have done that. I'm better than that. We're, we're, the, the sins, the temptations of Adam and Eve wrestled with were common. But here's really the question. Are you going to trust? Trusting God puts you in a position of vulnerability. Let, let's flip it around. Let's say the serpent scenario is correct. And God doesn't have their best interest at heart. And God is keeping good things from them because he's jealous and he wants to keep them down. And he doesn't want them to be like him. He wants them to always. Well, now you've got to sit. I mean, let's use our common terms. Now you've got a lifelong abuser wanting to put dominance and isolate the person he's abusing. I mean, and so once that seed gets thrown in there, that's what you're wrestling with. Either I got to, if I trust him, I'll never know whether he was trustworthy. If I trust him, he could just be gaslighting me. He could just be leading me on. And so it's the temptation to not be dependent and to know on our own. I, I, I'd jolly well like to know on my own, please, and not take your word for it. Which is ultimate. I mean, one, here's a question: Why is it that taking God of His word is the one thing that pleases Him and He counts as righteousness? I think it ties back to Genesis three because the fundamental issue is: Will Will you trust me? 
which then, why would God orchestrate scenarios that necessitate us trusting to prove the point? If every time we had faith, we saw, right? So they're talking about walking by faith and walking by sight. There would be no correcting of the fundamental problem, which is when you can't see, will you trust me? That's the question that's got to be resolved. And for those who do, he counts it as righteousness. But that's, it's, it's, it's how I'd frame Genesis 3. I'll tell you it's good and evil. And I got one rule for you. Don't eat from this tree. But can you really trust him? What if the tree is the best thing? How would you ever know? It, that's, that's it. I mean, so the, the correcting the problem is to return to trusting him and taking his word for it, which, not surprisingly, is hard to do. But I'm trying to highlight, not surprisingly, is central to what we have to do. It's the essence of faith. And it's the essence of unbelief. This is the, where the battle is fought. Okay, folks, we are at time or just about at time so god bless oh you got you got just, just to close this out don bring us home eternity will be far too short to not just be satisfied with god but to be praising and rejoicing and, and glorying in him what yeah the statement i say you'll be satisfied is far too small i will say it to somebody who is right now consumed with their non-satisfaction right now consumed with but I can't imagine what could possibly make this okay. I can't imagine what would possibly make up for these things. I can't imagine what thing you'd put on the other end of the scales that would balance this out. You'll be satisfied. That, that concern will evaporate. That, that's what I'm speaking to specifically. So much more than being satisfied, amen. But I wanna speak as clearly as I can. That unresolved why, which even the sinless son of God cries out on the cross. So, Wrestling with the why is not sin. Stumbling over it is. Wrestling with it, Jesus is on the cross. Why? You know, same thing. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned on me? And, and so if, again, at the heart of our salvation is one who trusted God. And he wants us to believe and to follow his example. Amen. And everything. In, and everything. Amen. God bless. Oh, Rowdy, Rowdy, I can talk to you in the back, but we're at time. Okay. I was just going to say, my, my cardiologist told me to limit uh, Fox News to 10 or 15 minutes. Okay. <laughs> 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 okay.